America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy sponsored by SAGE, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ed Class with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we're going to talk about best business books. Ron, you and I have read a lot of business books. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, we, uh, um, and you, you've written a couple. Uh, I've, I've co-authored one with you, so, so this might be something that we, we could be considered experts in, I suppose. <laughs> and I'm convinced that the uh, libraries in hell are stocked with nothing but business books, <laughs> and the libraries in heaven are stocked with literature. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> But that being said, we there, there are some good business books out there. I think you and I both would ad- admit to that. But there is a lot of garbage. Let's Absolutely. let's say it nicely with a little French accent to it. Makes it always makes it sound nicer. And uh, unfortunately, the garbage way outweighs the good stuff for sure. So that when you do come across something that is a nugget that you can take some stuff from. It's it's always a pleasure, and you, you know I get pretty excited about that. Occasionally, we'll we'll call one another mid book and say, "I'm only halfway through, but you got to read this." Got, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the only thing that keeps me going because you, you have to separate a lot of uh, chaff to get to the wheat. But boy, when you when you do find those gems, it it really does make it worth it. So. And that's what we're going to begin to do. Uh, we we plan on doing this more than once. This is this is the first of what we hope might be many. Uh, so, like our theme shows of the Free Rider Friday, this this might be a theme show in the future where we just talk about business books. And the idea is that we'll we will do one book per fifteen minute segment that we have of our show. So we'll four books in total each time that we do this. And one important note is that we don't think that the four that we're presenting today are the four best books. We're not we're not taking a position on number. We're not trying to do a top ten count down. Um, in fact, uh, almost the opposite. Because when Ron and I were prepping for this show, what we decided that we would do is deal with books that we hadn't really dealt with in depth. Some of which we may consider to be better than the books that we're going to talk about today. So, for example, we are we're having Dan Ariely next week, so we decided we're not going to talk about any of Dan Ariely's books since that's going to be explored in depth on our show next week. There's a little preview, by the way. Next week we have Dan Ariely coming in. 
Um, we also uh, eliminated some some things where we have have gone of so uh, books that we've authored. Uh, I'm sorry, books that we have had the authors on, and then also books that we have talked about in detail. So more recently, we we dealt with Peter a lot of Peter Block's work. So we're not talking about Peter Block, although I would definitely put at least one of his books in my top five. I don't know about about Ron. So to that end, let's 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 jump in, Ron, and I'll let you have the first say. Which which book are you going to pick for our first segment here that you want to talk about? Well, Ed, I'm going to talk about uh, and people that have heard me and I've mentioned it on the show as well, but uh, I do believe this is without a doubt the best book ever written on customer service. And it's called Minding the Store by Stanley Marcus. And it's it's just absolutely brilliant for a whole host of reasons. But, I mean, here's a guy who began working in the store under his father, that his father started in 1926, and his father told him the following, there is never a good sale for Neiman Marcus unless it's a good buy for the customer. I mean, isn't doesn't that just fit with our value proposition and the market brilliant. concept and yep. oh, all those things? Yeah, all the things we talk about. And Minding the Store is really his personal autobiography. I mean, it's it's kind of his life story. I think it was first published in 1974. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's uh, since been republished, I think, in 1997. But he talks about how Neiman Marcus was established as a result of bad judgment uh, from its founders, which was his father and then his younger sister and her husband, which was Al Neiman. So that's where they got the Neiman. And Ed, they had established a promotion business in Atlanta, Georgia that did really well. And so they were offered, uh, a, you know, somebody came in, wanted to buy it and they were offered two options. One, we'll just give you 25 grand or we'll give you a franchise for the state of Missouri or Kansas for this new thing called Coca Cola. <laughs> and they turned it down. <laughs> and, uh, of course, Marcus said, you know, had we taken that, there probably never would have been a Neiman Marcus. Um, but I thought that was pretty interesting. But one of the things I just love about the book is, I, I, I and I just went through it prepping for the show again, I can't tell you how many stories are in it where he's dealing with the customer on on such a personal level and just how far out of their way they would go for every single customer. I mean, this was, you know, they gave a guarantee long before there was a Nordstrom and, you know, people could return anything and they would do it with a smile and they just understood the lifetime value of every customer. In a time when that necessarily wasn't the focus, right? I mean, this is this is what early 1900s again. Yeah, he, the the Neiman Marcus store actually opened on September 8th in 1907. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 boy, uh, he's even got the original ad that you can see where they laid out their values. I mean, you talk about Simon Sinek, start with why they followed it. They told the world what they stood for and what the store stood for and what it was going to do. And, and they lived by that. And his father just instilled in him such a customer service ethic. It was just absolutely amazing. He, he, he remember, he recounts the story about how a woman came in after she had just, you know, it was blatant that she abused this dress that she had bought at a party or whatever. And he says, why do we let people take advantage of us this way? And the father said, uh, she's not doing business with the manufacturer. She's doing business with us. He goes, 
it cost us over 200 bucks to get a new customer. Uh, and if you look at this woman's buying potential, I'm not going to lose her for a $175 dress. And he says, you know, this woman over the course of my life with Neiman Marcus spent half a million dollars with us. And he said, so that was probably one of the most valuable lessons I learned. Mm, and, and a cheap investment, long haul. <laughs> Absolutely. <yeah. laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, we like we talked about in the uh, entrepreneur uh, heaven show that we did, you know, a lot of these guys really did understand the value of customer loyalty and, and they acted on it. And and I, I think there's no better example of that than than Stanley Marcus. I mean, the, the story after story recounts how he would literally just go way out of his way for for every customer, no matter how much they spent in his store. Yeah, and I and you know it's interesting because as I mentioned on the show a couple times, a big fan of of the PBS show Mr. Selfridge, and it sounds like they they had uh, eerily similar. Uh, thoughts on things and Selfridges did the same thing in the UK of course this is 1909 so it might have been just a straight out copycat situation but you know uh, what is it uh, co- copying is the best form of flattery flattery <laughs> <laughs> and, and Marcus was really well known because of course they set out to be you know the best quality the best value I mean the most discriminating the best furs you know they started out in women's apparel first and that's all they did and then they branched into men and then they branched into jewelry and other things but you know he 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 wrote another book called Quest for the Best which is kind of his journey around the world looking for the best of everything whether it's fur coats or all the merchandise that he carried uh you know people said they loved Neiman Marcus for what you didn't find in the store in other words their ability to edit you know mm-hmm. and just carry the right things he said because it's one thing for a for a retailer to buy something that will sell but we had the philosophy that we'll only buy it if it should be sold. Right. And you know, th- th- he was the one who came up with the his and hers Christmas gifts too, right? He did. He came up with the Christmas catalog, which they had had for a while. But he really got it a lot of publicity by putting the his and her gifts. And, you know, everybody knows every year this is such a huge announcement. You know, what oddball thing is – Neiman Marcus going to have in their catalog. I mean, they've had his and her camels and him, his and her mummies and his and her blimps and, you know, all sorts of these wild things. But that was his idea. And then, of course, he came up also with the first weekly fashion show in the country. So mm-hmm. he, he started that trend and he also started the bridal fashion shows. So when they end a fashion show, usually, you know, somebody comes out in a bride's dress. That, that was Stanley Marcus. And he also, um, came up, Ed, with personalized gift wrapping was, uh, another thing their store was known for because they would gift wrap for not just the holidays, but for all occasions. So no matter, you know, wedding anniversaries or birthday parties or whatever, they had gift wrappers on premises to do that. And then he also came up with these things called Fortnites, which were themes devoted to a country. And they would literally redo the Dallas store in, in that country, you know, pay tribute to its heritage or whatever. So whether it was Italy or Great Britain or, or whatever. And uh, those were wildly successful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that that's just a great example of the constant inner innovation that's necessary. And and you think, all right, well, why don't we see these constant innovations in the retail space 
the now, um, you know, you, and, and I guess we do to a certain extent. We look at look at Apple, you know, the fact that you can go in and and buy a product now without, if you don't want to, interacting with a salesperson. You can pick pick it up by something on your iPhone and walk out without, you know, which is a, a, a real big innovation. Right. You know, Stanley Marcus, actually, he wrote a couple of other books called The Viewpoints of Stanley Marcus. And I guess he wrote a weekly column for the uh, one of the Dallas local newspapers. I, I forget which one. And uh, he, he would express his opinions. Very opinionated guy. And it got him into a lot of trouble, too. He was he was a big liberal. He supported uh, John Kennedy and a lot of customers, of course, from conservative Dallas and Texas. Mm-hmm. You would literally I'd cut up their credit cards and send it to him and close their account because of what he said. He supported, uh, you know, he supported the Beatles. He supported four kids that got expelled from a school for letting their hair grow too long. And he actually paid for their, their legal defense. He lost a lot of customers over that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this guy wasn't afraid to, to speak his mind and he's, he's, he's got these other books. Um, but one of the other things that I that I uh, found uh, about him is there was a book written by a guy named Thomas Alexander, who served as ex- his executive VP of marketing for 20 years. And he wrote a book called Stanley Marcus, The Relentless Reign of a Merchant Prince. And it's an insider's account of this guy, which I'd never came across before. But one of the stories he tells that I absolutely love was he said there was two things that exceeded Stanley Marcus is Marcus's expectations and that was one was the Bohemian Grove in San Francisco the Bohemian Club and the mm-hmm. second was Sophia Loren because he <laughs> got to meet her at the the Italian fortnight that he did <laughs> <laughs> oh, so very, very interesting guy but literally folks if you want a just a great lesson in customer service minding the store is literally i think the best service book ever written and I've read lots of them, and his is just the most inspiring. Well, fantastic. And speaking of great customer service, one of our sponsors, Leading Results, uh, is also focused on great customer service with their organizations, have heard a lot of good things from the people who have worked with them in the past. And we really do want you to uh, take a look at our sponsors as well as give our show reviews on iTunes. Thank you. we got a couple more in, so we really appreciate that. But uh, as always, you can get a hold of us at Hashtag Ask TSOE on Twitter. We're monitoring that during the show. In fact, we do have a tweet that has come in, Ron, so we'll deal with uh, that. As well as get a hold of us re- via show notes, which are available at verisage.com slash TSOE. And we're going to give a little preview, Ron. Um, there, there is going to be, in the next week or so, a release of the soulofenterprise.com website. So oh, we're pretty awesome. excited about that. Yep. And so show notes will live there. But for now, you can still go to verisage.com slash TSOE. But in the meantime, let's hear from our friends at Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Is your website just a brochure, or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are Leading Results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. 
Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're talking about best business books, and we'd like to remind you that you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at Verisage.com. Many of you still sending us emails. like to give a shout-out to uh, Steve and Marcus and uh, a couple others that have sent us some emails in the last week or so. It's always great to hear from you. And I'd like to remind you to go to our uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash AskTSOE, and like us there. And we've been talking about best business books, and Ed, as as we discussed, you know, thousands of business books are published every year, and so many of them are just awful, and the shelf life is not very long. I feel like if they were movies, they'd you know they'd go right to DVD. Um, <laughs> but um, what's uh, what's on your list? And 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 I also think, by the way, recommending a book is always a scary proposition, right? It's kind of like arranging a blind date. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of hope it will lead to a better future, but you know who knows. But given that, what's your what's on your list next? All right. So the book that I want to mention is one that I know that you have read as well, and it is called The Halo Effect. And the Eight Other Business Delusions That Deceive Managers by Phil Rosenzweig, who is a professor of business, I think, somewhere in Switzerland. And born in California, though, uh, and, and, uh, but he wrote this book. And basically, I can, I can summarize this book in two sentences, Ron. You ready? Yep. Jim Collins is destroyed. Tom Peters is destroyed. That's, that's, that's the basic summary <laughs> of that this book. That is so true. Boy, is that true. Man, does he take down Collins. Yeah, in a big way. I mean, there's one entire chapter devoted to just destroying good to great. I mean, just just destroying it. But throughout the book, he he he's just taking pot shots at at him the whole way. And uh, you know, curious Collins did end up writing writing a book, I think, subsequent to this, which hasn't been all that popular. And I even forget the title of it. But it's it's sort of like oh, well, uh, a, a a reprieve of well, yes, I said good to great, but really, here are the things that you got to do to get there. And and really, uh, you know, I think that Rosenzweig has some terrific points. You know, he, and we're not going to go through all of the eight delusions, but I do want to talk specifically about one of them because, honestly, I see this on an almost daily basis in business thinking, and that is the delusion of correlation and causation. And right. how, you know, how many times I've seen business des- decisions that have, have basically amounted to 
the following logic: wet streets cause rain. Yep. Yep. And so and, true. and yeah, and that's that's really when you think about it, what this with the halo effect is. He's what he's saying is all of the stuff that we have, all of this this data, uh, especially in good to great, is is really backward thinking. Right. If if you start out with the premise of taking successful companies already, well, then no kidding <laughs> that you're going to find what, what commonalities and what caused success. But you can't go the other way. You can't say, okay, every company that does these four, six, or you know, twelve point things, it, it is going to be successful in the future. And I think that's really the the major lesson from the book is that you can't you can't. Uh, it's not backwardly compatible to look at a successful company, company, understand what caused that company's success, and then extrapolate that that's what will cause success for every other company in the future. It's, it really is a wet streets cause rain argument. Right. He calls it physics envy, you know, the idea that we can predict the, the, the movement of planet, so why not the performance of companies? Mm-hmm. But we're looking at the result and not so much the process. So one of the things he points out, Ed, was that – you know, business books are, are really engaged more in storytelling rather than scientific rigor. And, but he doesn't see a need. He said a lot of questions in business can be answered with the scientific method, which I found kind of interesting, almost contradicting what mm-hmm. he's saying throughout the book. But he's saying there are some questions that you can answer from a scientific basis, but you've got to make sure you don't get that causality and correlation part of it messed up. Well, well, yeah, because it, but it's so difficult ultimately to control for all of the variables is really what he's talking about, especially when you're talking about the high-level question, which is what he calls the mother of all business questions, um, what leads to high performance, right? What, what, what are the things? Uh, that 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 lead to those high performance things is is it is it you know great culture is it is it customer focus as in the case with Stanley Marcus is it employee focus or is it you know any number of those things and and he even you know talks about he doesn't say this specifically but he you know he debunks one of my favorite business models which was the fact that hey we've known for years that employee satisfaction causes customer satisfaction and customer satisfaction can it can potentially cause an increase to financial performance i mean that's kind of the flow back, back when xerox studied it but he does ask this question okay well well what what causes employee satisfaction he does he tries to come with that and what he he says is you can't really tell because quite frankly it could be financial performance that allows great companies like google and stuff to have you know nannies on staff and 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 ping pong tables available at every turn and double no foam lattes available for everyone it could be the fact that they perform well you know that that is that yields this this uh, employee satisfaction right so the cause and effect is the exact opposite Mm-hmm. Of what Xerox attributed it to, yeah, I, it's it's and 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 the book is full of lessons like that, which I just absolutely love because it really does make you think about you know I mean the halo effect is the tendency to look at a company's overall performance, mostly financial, and then make attributions about its culture, its leadership, its value. I mean, I, I love one of the things he says is we have no satisfactory satisfactory theory of leader of effective leadership that is independent of performance. In other words, you look at a successful company, you say, oh, they have great leaders. You look at a you know, not-so-successful company, you say, oh, they have lousy leaders. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no kidding, right? Not, not, not a great theory. 
Yeah, no, no, not at all. And 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 I think that you know that that's that's really the big challenge because it, it, I and I think he's right in this physics envy because I I call it or what I've heard it termed is logical positivism, right? Which is a very very fancy phrase for hey, listen, we've got numbers, so therefore we can we can make it scientific. Right. Like, right. Like Matthew Stewart says in The Myth of Management, right? You you mm-hmm. can go shopping with a scientific attitude, but that doesn't mean that there's a science of shopping. <laughs> right. <laughs> and as and as we as we proved back on our show that we did around Christmas time, you know, you shouldn't buy gifts for people, send them gift cards. So it'd be the best <laughs> best way to cause you can't scientifically buy the right gift for someone either. Um, but uh, exactly, you know, and I, and I think that 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 is to me really the great learning from this book is that hey, listen, you know, we gotta we gotta rethink this this data, right? Um, as I've, I've probably mentioned before, I'm quoted exactly one time in Harvard Business Review, and it's for this quote, which is "business ain't science." <laughs> That's and, uh, and and it's and it's because business is, I believe, it's an art. It's it's all of the things that we are in the soul of enterprise, which is the fact that business is made up of of, of people. Uh, we as people have a, a spiritual, I we believe, component. If not, um, it does not necessarily have to be religious, but a, a spiritual side of things. And that businesses need to have that spiritual side as well. And ultimately, that might be the biggest thing that leads to. Um, increased performance is, is those companies that recognize those things. Right. You know, one of the things he points out, too, that I absolutely love, I mean, this quest to read business books, you know, good to great and built to last and, I mean, just go down the list. It's endless. It, it's kind of like the point that Peter Block makes in the answer to how is yes. He says, we were yearning to find out how we can avoid the seemingly inevitable fate of decline and death. Mm-hmm. We're afraid yeah. of dying. <laughs> right, right. And, 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 and you know, I, I've said this to, in fact, I even think I, I asked Joe Pine about this, this idea that we should want companies or strive for companies to be around forever. Economists don't think this way. Economists could care less about the longevity of, of, of any one company. Mm-hmm. They want a system where there's lots of risk-taking and there's lots of experimentation, but economists don't get mired at all in how to, you know, build to last and all of this kind of crap. They really don't. They think it's frivolous. Well, I know, and and he is clearly uh, Rosenzweig. I, th- I think is an Austrian. I mean, I think he mentions, uh, and it's not Hayek, but maybe oh, it, it's Schumpeter, right? right? The concept of creative destruction and yeah. how how you know that that's really what business is founded on. You know, no business is supposed to last forever. Even our the one that our vaulted Apple, right? They almost died, and and probably are, are going to screw up. So, like when people come to me uh, as an Apple defender, say, you know, well, Apple screwed up. Well, yeah, and they're going to, and it's some point there will not be an apple <laughs> it's gonna yeah. it's gonna happen and that's good because what that means is there'll be something else that's better to replace it and and you know he does he does quote schumpeter and the other person that i think he does give a lot of credence to well to two people that i found very interesting is one he he pays homage to clayton christensen mm-hmm. and his yes. theory about the innovator's dilemma and all of that and and i do highly admire clayton as i know you do but he also gives a lot of kudos to andy grove and his book, Only the Paranoid Survive, you know, the founder of Intel. Mm. And he said that the thing that made Andy so successful was he was just, he was a risk taker. 
he just constantly took risk. You know, he changed over from a, a chip company to a, a processing company, and that was an enormous risk at the time. Of course, it was even riskier if he didn't do it. But and he even quotes Andy Grove saying that Grove thought that Edward Deming's line about driving out fear. Now, this would contradict what Howard and Steve Jeske told us, right? Howard Hansen mm. and Steve. He said he thought that that was simple-mindedness. Grove thought fear was an incredibly powerful motivator. Fear of bankruptcy, fear of competition, fear of loss, fear of being wrong. Right. He actually used fear and embedded it in the culture at, at Intel. And I found that to be really, really interesting. It, it is because uh, Intel's obviously was successful for a long, long time. Uh, just a couple of quick points on this that I could just to, to, to share with you. I, I love this quote. I, I, I've underlined this like six times. Um, he, he talks about the, 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 the way human resource policies affect performance reflects an idiosyncratic contingency, right? And then he goes on to say idiosyncratic contingency is a bit like causal ambiguity. It's the way a PhD says, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So I thought that was just a, a great line. He also says this. He says with the, the other quote, "We need to execute better." Is about as helpful as saying, "Let's all do a better job." Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. He says, "Anytime I hear a company say they need to execute, I always go look at the strategy." <laughs> so it's kind of our favorite mantra. There's no good way to execute a crappy strategy, right? Well, absolutely. And we've got a minute, minute, minute to go before our next break, Ron. But you said you had a story about this that got you in a lot of trouble. Quick, can you quick tell that? Yes, I, I. You know, I read this book in March of 2007, and um, I was giving a presentation to an accounting group who had guess who as a key spe- a keynote speaker, Jim Collins. <laughs> and I was speaking the day before Mr. Collins, oh, and I stood Lord. up and I blasted him with this stuff from this book, and. Boy, that grew, I got the most negative evals I've ever gotten. <laughs> they said, "He, what right does he have to blast Jim Collins? And nobody mentioned the fact that I was holding, or not, I wasn't holding it up, but I was quoting this book, uh-huh. you know, by this other scholar. Right. I said that right. you should take, all I asked, all I told the audiences was, you know, listen to Mr. Collins, but go, please go read this book, yeah. you know, keep an open mind. And boy, did I get in trouble for that. And I've never been hired by them since. I, no, I think I pissed off everyone universally. Because I guess when you're spending eighty-five grand to bring somebody in like Jim Collins, then you know there's a halo effect. Yep. <laughs> Everything he says has got to be right. Got to right? be right. Got to be right. And, and, and that's what that's what another thing I love about this book is he talks about these guys pulling down you know eighty-five hundred fifty grand per speech because they're great storytellers. You know they can spin a great yarn. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, but you know <laughs> Bill Bill Clinton's five hundred grand make five hundred million make him look like a piker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, in an organization that does also, uh, I think, really listen to customers and has a halo effect, and and that is our friends at Azamba. Uh, uh, Azamba concentrates on CRM software and helping you understand your customers better and performing for them as well. So we'd love for you to take a look at their work, azamba.com, and uh, talk to our friend Peter Wolf. But uh, before we get to our break, I just want to remind you that you can uh, send in a Tweet at hashtag AskTSOE during the show, and we will get to those in just a few minutes. And right after this word from our friends at Azamba. (laughs) 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And just a reminder, folks, we would love for you to go out and review the show on iTunes. We did get two more this week, and thank you so much for those of you who have done this. If you haven't had a chance to, I uh, hope you can do that this week. It uh, really helps us in the show, and, and, and we, we certainly want to hear you and your feedback. So TSOE at Verisage.com, as well as tweet us at during the show at Hashtag Ask TSOE. And we do have a question, Ron, that I think is in alignment and a good transition for us uh, away from the halo effect and toward the next business book. And that is Barrett Young asks us, he loved the, the business model show that we did and often wondered why a company should refresh, how often, I'm sorry, how often should a company refresh this business model and when should they double down? Mm. <laughs> Maybe Barrett spends too much time at the blackjack table. I'm not <laughs> split those eights. Always split eights. Eights and aces. Well, you know, uh, Peter Drucker thought that the uh, he didn't use the phrase business model. He thought the business model was the theory of the business. And he thought it had to be tested constantly against the external market realities that's what he meant by looking out the window getting outside you know the the values outside of your organization so i would say constantly in terms of doubling down if you're talking about risk i you know i like we talked with uh, dr jules goddard um he doesn't believe companies take enough risks and since risk or the source of profits or the origins of profit um I, I think we need to, you know, maybe not double down. It might not be the right or the, the phrase I'd use, but I'd say risk taking is, is essential. If you're not taking risks, what are you doing? Exactly. I mean, profits come from risk. That's that, that's the whole notion. And, and even Rosenzweig, I think, points this out. He's, he, he says, look, ultimately, it's about risk. He says the problem is, is that there's a safety factor in, among management that says, yes, we want to take risks, but only if we know they're going to work out. Well, then by definition, it's not a risk. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean that's why he's paying such homage to to Andy Grove because he says he you know the importance of risk taking. He said otherwise, you know, all of these these business books that talk about these great companies and all their attributes. He says it offers a picture of business somewhere between Norman Rockwell and and Mister Rogers. Um, but but business is 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 quite disruptive. Right, as soon as a business is launched, it's already on shaky ground because somebody's vying to take it out. Yep, absolutely, and I think that's that we have to remember that, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. That that that's the way businesses are. So it, it is it is a venture, and and entrepreneurship is risk taking. All right, well, I, I wouldn't from, want to live in a country or an economy who, who, that that there was no loss. No, right? right. It'd be it'd be like heaven without hell. I mean, you got to have both in a in a free dynamic eco- economy. Otherwise, you're you know you got the Soviet Union, <laughs> North Korea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, very true. All right, well, let's move on to our next book since we're already seven minutes into this segment, Ron. So, uh, what your 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 next book up for the day? My uh, this would be number seven on my list, and, and Ed, just to kind of clarify too about our parameters for this for this hopefully what will become a series, folks. We'd love to hear from you too if you believe uh, we should do best business books as a regular series, maybe once a month or once every couple months or whatever. But um, I, we are including, or at least I am. I'm choosing from my favorite top 100 books so we we have separated the wheat from the chaff for you so we're only putting forth books that we believe are absolutely profound so i i did want to make that statement and that this book actually uh is number seven on my list of all-time you know favorite top 10 books Mm -hmm. and it's profit beyond measure extraordinary Ah. extraordinary results through attention to work and people by a guy named H. Thomas Johnson and another guy by the name of Anders Brahms, I, th- I believe. And Johnson, what's interesting about Thomas Johnson is he's an accounting professor and cost accounting professor, I believe at the University of Oregon. And he wrote in 1987 the book Relevance Lost, The Rise and Fall of Management Accounting, which Harvard Business Review named uh, one of the most 14 influential business books of all times. Wow. (laughs) And that caused the activity-based costing revolution, that book Relevance Lost. Well, he wrote that with a guy named Kaplan, Robert Kaplan, who went on, of course, to develop the balanced scorecard. Well, Johnson and him, who used to be really good friends, they've been feuding for years. They won't speak to each other because while Kaplan went down the balanced scorecard route, Johnson went down what he calls the management by means route. And that's what this book is all about, this profit beyond measure. I believe it's a seminal work because one of the things he does in it is he studies Toyota and another company called Scania. Uh, Scania, I think they're owned by Volvo now. I'm not sure, but they make trucks. And he was teaching at a conference, and somebody came up to him and said, have you ever studied Toyota? And he said, no. And he said, well, Toyota doesn't use a cost accounting system. Now, remember, this is a cost accounting professor. He started the activity-based costing revolution. And he looked (laughs) at this guy, and he said, bull. And the guy said, no, you should go study him. They don't have a standard cost accounting system. And sure enough, he went and studied them, turned into like a three- or five-year study. He hung around them, and, and this book is the result. And sure enough, Toyota does not use a standard cost accounting system. This book explains how they do it. Wow. And as a, as a prior cost accountant, like kind of like Johnson, although I don't know if he ever practiced, but he's certainly a professor, so he understands cost accounting, uh, I was just blown away by this. 
And, um, you know, he, he makes so many good points in this book about how a system is an interdependent, how a business is an interdependent system. Um, but he, he, you know, let me just give you a sample of what he says in this book. Um, he says management accounting simply takes accounting, revenue, cost, and profitability information uh, and, 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 you know, tries to trace it to particular activities and products of the business that gave rise to those results. He says, assigning such quantitative measures to parts of a mechanistic system makes sense. However, the parts of a natural living system cannot be so treated. Accounting measures are unable to penetrate the organic, multifaceted union between customer and company that ultimately is the source of a company's financial results. And, uh, I mean, just throughout the book, there's example after example of trying to treat a company like it's an atomistic thing that we can, you know, make efficient every part and then we'll have a more effective whole. And we know that's false. Yeah, completely false. You know, to, and and I think your example that you talk about is is if you took the you know the I don't know nothing about cars. You know, the best engine from a Lamborghini, the braking system of a Ferrari, the transmission of this. Would would you have then the best car? And the answer is no. You'd have a big pile of junk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And and you know the other thing he says. Um, people challenge me all the time when I start talking about Toyota and they don't have a standard cost accounting system. Um, one of the things he says is none, none of this is meant to imply that Toyota does not have accounting and production planning information systems. Right. Of course it does. Toyota has a comprehensive array of information systems, accounting and otherwise, with which to plan in advance of operations and to report results of operations after the fact. But here's the key, Ed. He says, but information from such systems is not allowed to influence operational decisions. In other words, if the engineers want to do something to the car, the cost accountants can't second guess them. Yeah, say that quote again. I think that's critically important. (laughs) You know, he says, but information from such systems is not allowed to influence operational decisions wow i know in fact it's it's italicized to to emphasize it in the original and i mean compare that to most how most companies use cost accounting or in professional firms timesheets its very purpose is to influence operational decisions Absolutely. He says, and, and, and let me just finish this thought because he goes on to say, during the design stage, long before the first penny has been committed to making a vehicle, Toyota has always placed enormous importance on setting and achieving cost targets. To do so, over the years, Toyota has developed a famous technique for target costing. Simply stated, target cost is the maximum cost the company can afford to incur to produce and sell a vehicle and still earn a required profit at the price customers are expected to pay. Hence, our our whole talk on this first and second law of marketing and all of that. I mean, this target costing makes cost accounting obsolete. And I, I really do think this is absolutely seminal uh, and it's going to be really hard for people to to come to grips with it. I, I, I think cost accounting is irrelevant. 
You know, and it's it's funny. One of the things I saw this week was somebody complaining that hey, you know, it only costs Apple eighty five dollars to produce the iWatch, or I'm sorry, the Apple Watch. We were talking about that last week, and their pricing was at this. Like, well, first of all, who cares, right? <laughs> right, and and second of all. Kudos to Apple. I mean, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm 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 betting I'm betting that Apple doesn't have a cost accounting system either. I bet Apple does target costing. I bet Apple knew that or, to, almost to the penny the the proposed cost of an Apple Watch before they started building it. I I, I think so. I I've read other things about how Jobs like priced uh you know wireless internet connection into his laptops and he just told his people look it has to be priced at this level in other words figure out how to do it figure out how to bring the cost in to that level and one of the things i found in in uh researching this is uh there's a guy who's an imagineer at disney Uh, he does project estimating and he says um, he says, you know, it's my role as a project estimator. It's common to see people viewing cost constraints as a primary part of the challenge Imagineers must solve. Um, what I think some miss is how cost limits can themselves be instrumental in producing creative solutions. I've seen cost constraints motivate the team to produce a solution that looks better and lasts longer than the real thing, uh, which is, you know, fascinating if you think about it it kind of goes back to henry ford's comment nobody knows what a cost should be yep absolutely great and cost accountants and cost accounts can only tell you what they were in retrospect in retrospect right in retrospect but target costing is all about planning you know future costs yeah so well folks we need to uh we're up against our last break here but again to contact ed or myself you can email us at tsoe at verisage.com and please we know many of you listen on uh on on demand and just like ed said we'd love it if you uh, gave us some more itunes reviews those really help and now we want to hear from ed's employer sage Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit BelieveInYourNumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, we know that the, we had a commercial from Sage during that third break, and I just want to remind all of you that Sage Summit is coming up, and that is Sage's conference. Ron and, and myself plan on being there, so it's a, it's a fantastic way to get a hold of us if you want to see us live, sagesummit.com, for more information on that in Nolens, Ron. Yeah, I can't wait. And yeah. that, I'd also like to point out, too, that next week, uh, the Professional Pricing Society is having their conference in uh, Dallas. And so I'll get to hang out with you for a while and, and do the show from from, da- uh, from uh, Texas with you. But, folks, if you're going to be at the Professional Pricing Society, uh, please stop by. I'm delivering a keynote. I'll be in the bookstore. So would love to meet as many of you as possible. Yes, a new version of the Top Ten Business Myths, as I recall, right, Ron? Yes, I've taken your work and tweaked it a bit, and uh, I'm going to try and do it as best I can in one hour, kind of like this show. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that. I believe it took us two shows, as I recall. It did. Yeah, okay. Good luck. (laughs) Good luck. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah, so if you're in Dallas, come see us. I will be at Ron's speech, which I believe is 11 o'clock on Thursday, and I know he's got some book signings, and I'll be sure to have copies of The Soul of Enterprise so that you can, if you want to meet with us, we can we can both sign them. There, there has not been a copy of The Soul of Enterprise yet signed by both of us, so there's That's a right. little – Tidbit for people. And we need to do it in pink crayon, Ed, so it's one of a kind and it will drive up the price. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. The, uh, the last book that we're going to talk about in uh, the few minutes that we have left here is – now, this is kind of a, the, probably the weirdest one of the, of the four, and I'll tell you why. First of all, it's by an author, Margaret Wheatley, who – this I don't even think that this book is necessarily her, her best work. I, I really enjoy another one of her book called Leadership in, and the New Science, mm-hmm. um, in which she talks about some so taking uh, scientific theory as we know it now and applying it to – thoughts around business because she said, hey, listen, that's what that's what we did for a long time. We took, you know, Copernican geometry and and, and we took some of these theories of Newton and applied them to business. Uh, and, you know, it was helpful to a certain extent. He goes, but but she said, but can we apply the new a new science, you know, quantum physics to 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 business and how that would work? So it's a pretty interesting read. Anyway, this or this is a later work of hers, published in two thousand two, and it is entitled "Turning to One Another: Simple Conversations to Restore Hope and Hope to the Future." And uh, I really like this book mostly because, you know, w- when you pick it up in the business section, or what I did is like, well, holy cow, why is this even in the business section? Because it has almost absolutely nothing to do with business, except that Mark, Margaret Wheatley is a quote-unquote famous business author, right? Um, and, and the best part of this book, and I don't, I don't mean to shortchange the book because there's, there's poems in this book. There's haikus in this book. There's <laughs> there's song lyrics in this book. I mean, really interesting. And I wonder if you know she doesn't do do an interactive version. If there would be someone singing kumbaya here, but in part three of the book, she she introduces us to what she says the ten uh, conversation starter questions. Right. Mm. 
And I just think that these are fantastic questions. And, and, and as someone who loves and studies language, especially the art of asking great questions, I really appreciate her sitting down and thinking through great questions. So I'm going to take them through, Ron, and, and I will ask you to just maybe comment on them as we, as we move through. Excellent. And I know yeah. there's, there's going to be some of them you're not going to like, so that's okay. Sure. Right? And the first question is, do I feel a vocation to be fully human? Wow. Right? That's so like right out, that's, that's like right out of Howard Hansen. <laughs> right. I mean, this is like deep stuff. I mean, think about that. A calling to be fully a human being. I mean, right. that's a, that's, you know, you need a couple of drinks to start talking about yeah, that. Yeah. You're, now you're getting into theology, Ed. This is great. We need to get uh, Lappin back and Father Sirico. <laughs> exactly. Well, they get better. That's just number one, Ron. That's just number one. Number two is what is my faith in the future? Oh, I love that. I love that. Brilliant. Right? So you have to be thinking about the future, and you have to have a belief that the future is better than the past. Well, you don't have to, but how depressing for people that don't, right? There'd be no risk-taking if we didn't believe in a brighter tomorrow. There certainly would be no children. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) The ultimate risk-taking, right? Right. The ultimate entrepreneurial act. Right. Having children, because how sadistic and twisted do you have to be to bring children into a world where you believe that the future is worse than today. <laughs> well, that's one of the theories about why the birth rate's declining. But, you know, that's very Gilder in, too. I mean, yeah. you know, he, he believes in, in the whole faith in the future, and it's the leap, it's not the look that, yep. that is the ultimate discovery. Yep. Okay, so number, that's number two. Number three, um, what do I believe about others? Hmm. Right, so it's it, but but again, it's internally focused, but trying to understand what what about others. So pretty pretty deep question there. So so, so maybe a, you know, do I run on the assumption that people are honest, or do yeah. I have a zero sum mentality or an, or an abundance mentality? Right. Do I believe that you know most people have an have a have an intent, an evil intent, or do they have a positive intent, or what what do I believe about others? Right. Right. Uh, number four, I love this one. What am I willing to notice in my world? <laughs> self-awareness right what am i what am i actually willing to notice because you have and i love that because it, in that question is is an incredible amount of you know there is an there there has to be an intent to what you are willing to notice about what's happening before you if you tried to describe if i tried to talk about all of the things that i see right now before my desk i would easily go crazy right right so we have to filter it out. And what are you willing to notice about that? Here's one of my all-time favorite questions. And I love to talk about this, especially in the concept of business. I think this is right, especially sales. All right. So here it is. Um, when have I experienced good listening? <laughs> Beautiful. Right. When have I actually felt listened to, actually felt listened to? Because we can sense that as people, right? Sure. When, we, when we're actually well listened to. Um, Next one, am I willing to reclaim time to think? Yep. Right? Again, Excellent. a decision that, that you need to make. This is the one Smart. I think you might not like. I don't want to, well, I shouldn't have said that, but what is my relationship I want with the earth? No, that's, I can see that. See? All right. So there you go. All right. So that's number seven. Uh, number eight, what is my unique contribution to the world? Love it. Which I really like. What is the thing that I, I have to offer for other people to talk about, right? Yep. 
Uh, number nine, when have I experienced working for the common good? Mm-hmm. And again, that gets you into trying to decide what, what, what is the common good. I mean, and that, that's a business question, right? That's certainly the heart of entrepreneurship. What, what we're trying to figure out something that is better for other people, right? Absolutely. We're serving others. Yeah, absolutely. Serving others, right? And then here's probably the, you know, the, the, again, another one that you probably need a couple of glasses of wine to get started on. When do I experience the sacred? Uh, <laughs> hopefully not just every Sunday. Yeah, hopefully not. But, you know, but that's okay too, right? I mean, at, the, at, at, at least for a place for it to start. So anyway, Margaret Wheatley, turning to one another and the 10 questions that uh, conversation starters, boy, uh, you know, I went through them extremely fast. We could uh, dedicate an entire show to each one of those questions. They're that profound. Right, right. No, that's excellent. I, I you know, I, I haven't read any of her stuff. I, I've read things about her and book reviews on her. But uh, yeah, I think I need to pick up one of her books and, and dive in. She's a deep thinker. Yeah, very deep. Very deep thinker. I would, uh, you know, uh, go go with leadership in the new science. I think you might like that one better. Okay, excellent. <laughs> well, folks, we will post all of these books and 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 even the ones that uh, we also mentioned as well uh, on our show notes at verisage dot com slash tsoe. Uh, so you can you can find them all there with links and maybe some other interesting things, tidbits from each one. And Ed, what uh, what's on store for next week? Well, I, I gave it up earlier, but let's talk about it again. Uh, one of our the most influential thinkers on on each one of us, I would say, over the past five or ten years, Dan Ariely, author yes. uh, author of lots of books, but 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 of course, my favorite, predictably irrational. And uh, I, I I've already been mulling through the questions for him. Yeah, me too. And you know, his latest book, Ed, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, is fascinating and I, I there's just a ton of stuff in there when i got to see him live he talked about some of the research that was going into that book so i can't wait to have him on next week folks that's folks that's going to be a great show yep and i had a, i did take his course on coursera too so good stuff oh excellent well Ed, i'm really looking forward to that so i guess i'll see you in 167 hours <laughs> This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage. Supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific, and Ron and I will be live together here in Dallas. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at www.verisage.com slash TSOE. 